Okay, let's turn to Galatians chapter 1. Uh, it's page 1168 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, a few weeks ago, I bought a new jumper because it is that time of year. And it, it came in this bag. Uh, I've removed reference to the retailer, although the first to identify the shop afterwards might win a prize. Emphasis on might. Uh, but I love what's written on the side of this bag. Just living is not enough. I must have fresh air and freedom. It's brilliant. And from Christmas to the uh, end of April, we here at Windsor spent Sunday mornings traveling with Abraham through uh, his journey into the unknown from Genesis 12 right through to 22. And this morning we're starting a new series which I've renamed Fresh Air and Freedom. I was originally going to call it Free at Last, but Fresh Air and Freedom is so much better. And it's based on the relatively short New Testament letter to the churches of Galatia. Now, Galatians has less than 150 verses. It's reasonably brief. And yet, in terms of content and its significance, it is substantial. It's been described as the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. It's also been described as one of the most important documents in human history. And one of the reformers went as far as to say, I have betrothed myself to it. And I'm not sure how his wife Katie felt about that. But there are two reasons why I thought, you know, it might be a good idea to look at this short epistle. For a start, many of the characters from Genesis reappear. So we have Abraham in here, and Sarah, and Hagar, and Ishmael, and Isaac. They all get a mention. But secondly, and far more importantly, this book calls us back to, it reminds us of, and it clarifies the gospel. The ultimate breath of fresh air. Because as we're about to discover, no sooner had the gospel message been shared than it became compromised and contaminated. People were inhaling and exhaling polluted air. And Paul couldn't just sit back and do nothing or say nothing. And 2,000 years later, we find ourselves in a similar situation. The gospel is still in constant danger of corruption. And I think it's vital that we try to tap into Paul's response. We try to listen to his advice. And we try, and I emphasize try, to make the relevant connections. But that is not going to be easy. We are going to have to wrestle with this text. There is a world of difference between our context. 21st century Western society post-Christendom. There's a world of difference between our context and this context. First century, ancient Turkey, pre-Christendom. Where we find ourselves and where Paul found himself are miles apart. They are poles apart. John Stott makes this point. Whenever we pick up the Bible, 
Whenever we read Galatians, for example, we are conscious of stepping back two millennia, or in the case of the Old Testament, even more. We travel backwards in time behind the microchip revolution, the electronic revolution, the scientific revolution, and the industrial revolution, until we find ourselves in an alien world which long ago ceased to exist. And therefore, what we are called to do is what Stott refers to as the act of double listening, where we listen carefully, although with different degrees of respect, and that's important. We listen carefully both to the ancient word and to the modern world in order to relate one to the other with a combination of fidelity and sensitivity. And only, only if we can develop this capacity for double listening will we avoid the opposite pitfalls of unfaithfulness on one hand to God's word and irrelevance to God's world on the other hand. And it's only then that we're able to speak God's word into God's world with effectiveness whenever we engage in the process of double listening. So let me uh, invite you to engage with this new Sunday morning service because although our environment may be very different, the need for fresh air and freedom is exactly the same. Bit of background. During his first missionary journey, Paul had established a number of churches, or to put it more accurately, a number of congregations in Galatia. Now, there is some debate about exactly where Galatia is. Is it north? Is it south? I'm just not going to go there or get into that. Paul had returned to Jerusalem, but news soon filtered through to him that some people, and we're going to identify who in a moment, but some people had slipped into the churches and they started to drip feed certain teaching. Dangerous teaching. And as a result, Paul writes and sends this urgent and highly emotional letter. And in some ways, it would really make a lot of sense for us to read all six chapters. To read all 149 verses now. But we don't have time to do that. And so what we are going to do is we're just going to read the first ten verses as we try to set the scene, so to speak, and and we'll begin to tease out some initial thoughts. So, as we often do here at Windsor, let's stand for the public reading of God's Word. Galatians chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not with a human commission, nor by human authority, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel, which really is no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let that person be under God's curse. As we have already said, and so I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let that person be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win human approval or God's approval? Am I trying to please people? 
If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Grab a seat. Do you know, this, this title, the, the Apostle Paul, it sort of just rolls off our tongues, doesn't it? I mean, we know it. We're familiar with it. It sounds right, but in Galatia, this stuck in some people's throats. People knew what an apostle was. It was a special messenger. It was someone with special status. It was someone who had authority. But there were certain people who were very reluctant to identify Paul as one of these. And so he does it for them. Right from the word go, he writes, Paul, an apostle. This is who I am. But he doesn't just leave it at that because he knows others won't. He knows there will still be some people who are dubious about his claims. And so he clarifies the source of his apostolic authority. He makes it clear, listen, I wasn't appointed by any human being. I wasn't appointed by a human agency. But I was appointed by Jesus Christ and by God the Father. His, as far as he was concerned, was a divine appointment. And Paul's reference point for that was his experience on the Damascus Road. And following that dramatic encounter with the risen Christ, Paul was able to write, listen, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Paul firmly believed. He firmly believed that he had been personally commissioned, called by Jesus Christ to this role. Now granted, on another occasion he said, listen, I am the least of all the apostles. But as he begins this critically and important and urgent letter, he affirms his credentials. Paul, an apostle. Now some people might think, Paul's quite full of himself, wasn't he? Paul liked the idea of titles and or the kudos that came with this particular one. But if you thought that, then you'd be completely missing the point as far as Paul's concerned. Paul was passionately committed to the gospel. This breath of fresh air. And therefore, as far as he was concerned, I have to vigorously defend who I am. I've got to vigorously defend my authority. Because if people doubt who I am, they're going to doubt my message. In fact, they're not even going to doubt my message. They may even reject the gospel. And that's something he couldn't stomach. And so in this opening introduction, Paul is not on some ego trip. Paul is simply laying down a really important marker. I'm writing to you as an apostle, one with an authority. Hasn't come from any human being, hasn't come from any human agency. It has come from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. And Paul then greets the church, you'll notice, by using two familiar and heavily loaded words. Grace and peace. Again, those are familiar words to us. Familiar words generally. You've been about a church for any length of time. Those are words you'll hear time and time again being used. And at one level, they won't have come as any great surprise to those hearing this letter read for the very first time. Grace and peace were just standard Greek and Jewish terms of greeting. But what totally changes everything, including these two words, is their source. Look at verse 3, because it's grace and peace that flow from somewhere, that come from somewhere. Grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we have in this greeting is what John Stott describes as a pregnant phrase with theological, or a phrase pregnant with theological substance. 
And it could be said, and some people may find this far too simplistic, but here is an initial summary of the gospel. Here it is in a nutshell. Grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But what is grace? What is grace? According to some people, it is the most important word in the entire Bible. So how would you define it? It's a thought. It's a concept. It's an attitude. It's a characteristic. Let me quote you uh, some lines from the current Mumford and Sons single. It seems that all my bridges have been burned, but you say that's exactly how this grace thing works. It's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive with every start. Do you know, for me, that is a brilliant and a really fresh description of grace. Grace is an amazing and outrageous God-given gift that transforms a life. And it stands at the very heart of the gospel. And it stands alongside peace, grace and peace. One of our greatest needs as human beings, and maybe Brian's been referring to this already, is peace. Peace within ourselves. Peace with others. And ultimately peace with God. And you see as far as Paul was concerned. That's what the gospel offered. It didn't just offer that. It delivered it. And it still does. And Paul then goes on to refer to the key historical event. Where this grace was demonstrated. And where it was exhibited in full and graphic technicolor. And from where we actually obtain and receive this peace. And that is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Which for Paul stands smack bang at the center of his faith and his gospel. And so he writes, grace and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for our sins. This breath of fresh air. You see, for Paul, Christ's death was so incredibly significant. And as we work our way through this letter, we're going to discover more and more about how Paul actually understood the events of that very first Good Friday. But right up front in this brief introduction, he lays down two more markers. He actually implies two key aspects of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. To start with, it was sacrificial. He says, listen, Jesus gave himself. He wasn't simply executed because he was found out. Jesus laid down. He surrendered his life. And as someone has said, the death of Christ was primarily neither a display of love, nor an example of heroism, but a sacrifice for sin. Sacrificial. And secondly, it was for us. Paul writes, he gave himself for our sins. It wasn't his sin that nailed him to the cross. It was our mess. It was our rebellion. It was our wrongdoing. It was, if you like, it was substitutional. In other words, Jesus died in our place. He died instead of us. And here in these opening remarks, in this initial greeting, Paul is emphasizing the reality and the truth of the gospel that these people haven't, that they can't, and they never will be able to save themselves. The gospel really is all about 
Jesus. It really is all about what he has done, who he is, what he has done. Christ is all they need. And what he has done is all they will ever need. Let that truth filter through your thinking. Get down into your heart. Christ, if you hear nothing else this morning, just hear this. Christ is all you need. But notice that Christ died not just for their sins but also to deliver them Christianity is a rescue religion but what is it that Paul says you need to be delivered from you need to be rescued from well it's there in verse 4 he says you need to be rescued from the present evil age now here we've got one of those really tricky phrases that has confused people for years what exactly is the present evil age And there are lots of ways of looking at this, and I'm going to give you two options, and both of them are valid, I think. The first is that Paul was referring to the present age of wickedness. In other words, he was saying, listen, you people who are receiving this letter, and us as well, you don't have to live according to the values of the ways of this world. You don't have to live according to the values and ways of this messed up, dysfunctional, at times dark, sin-infected world. Because of Jesus, because of what Jesus has done, you can live a new life. You can live a transformed life. You can live life to the beat of a different drum. A distinctly different life that is characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Something Paul will go on to tease out, and so will we on the 18th of July. So verse 4 could mean that. And I really like that interpretation because there's something really attractive. There's something very appealing about living life as it was meant to be lived as opposed to some of the rubbish that you see around you and you see all too often in you. Christianity is a rescue religion. Rescues us from this present evil, this present age of wickedness. But secondly, and this also carries weight, The present evil age Paul is referring to could be a life that is dictated by the law. Which we're we're about to see was a huge issue for Paul. And it was a huge issue for these churches or these congregations. And it was a huge issue for a bunch of slightly dodgy teachers. But if we're going to understand what that perspective means, this present evil age, a life dictated by the law, then we need to keep going to try to tease it out with a little more clarity. Although before we go there, have a look at the end of verse 4. All of this is according to the will of God our Father. See, God the Son accomplished all this, but behind it all was the Father pulling the strings and intimately involved. And as Paul ends his opening comments, and I know we've only got to verse 4, but as Paul ends his opening comments, he finishes what we often refer to as a doxology, a liturgical formula of praise to God. So Paul has established his authority, Grace and peace from God have been highlighted. The death of Christ has been emphasized. The will of God has been affirmed. And so Paul finishes, to whom? To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Tempted to finish at that point. But the scene having been set, Paul then lets loose. Look at this verse, verse 6. He says, I am astonished. I'm gobsmacked that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and you're turning to another gospel. Now some people have made a really big deal of the fact 
that Paul doesn't immediately follow up his greeting with a prayer for the Galatians. Or with an expression of praise and thanksgiving. Or for a commendation. He did it in Ephesians. He did it in Philippians. But here, he's right in there snapping at the jugular. And this probably does reveal to us just how anxious Paul is. This probably indicates the depth of the apostles' feeling. But it's also worth bearing in mind that Galatians is generally believed to be Paul's first letter. And therefore, up to this point, no precedent had been set. No pattern has emerged. This is Paul's, if you like, first bash at letter writing. And so therefore, maybe in subsequent ones, he decided to inject a more pastoral tone. Let's begin with a few positives before we have a go at someone. It's a great attitude to adopt generally, but Paul doesn't adopt it in this letter. But look at verse 6 and 7 with me. Paul says, listen, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting this. You're deserting something which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and they're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. A group of people have infiltrated these churches. And as I said, they've stirred up trouble and they've begun to teach a polluted message. And it was endangering the gospel. And these intruders are generally referred to as Judaizers. Now, that's not a term to refer to Jews in general. But it was a term to refer to a specific group within early Christianity who believed that conversion to Christ also involved a further conversion to their form of Judaism. What they were promoting was a Jesus plus something else gospel. And this is what really rattled Paul's cage. This is the reason he sends this rocket of a letter. Because for Paul, Christ plus something else is spiritually lethal. And the something else that they wanted to include, they wanted to include it as necessary, was a commitment to the law. And so what you have here in a sense and this is what upset Paul, is that the focus of salvation has shifted from Christ and Christ alone to a movement. It wasn't just a case of surrendering to Christ. These Judaizers also also wanted you to join their group. Don't just become a Christian. Become a... You fill in the blank. Because it sounds really familiar. Now, in terms of what this commitment to the law looks like, it did get specific here in the first century. There were two key issues. Here's what it looks like. Circumcision and eating habits. Not only what you ate, but who you ate with. And so what was going on here, as far as Paul was concerned, wasn't just a theological issue. There was a social and racial dimension that was completely toxic. These Judaizers weren't simply interested in converting people. They wanted to nationalize them. It's not just about becoming a Christian. You need to become a something or a someone else. Now, it wasn't that Paul was opposed to circumcision. It also wasn't that Paul was opposed to eating kosher food. Paul's big problem and the cause of his frustration was that this group were actually promoting the idea Jesus isn't quite enough. In other words, as well as Jesus, you're going to need to be circumcised. You're also going to need to come down with them. 
And for Paul, this attitude effectively undermined the work of Christ. From Paul's perspective, it seemed that they were implying, listen, do you know what you've got to do? You've got to finish Christ's finished work. And that's a nonsense. In fact, as Paul says, do you know what that is? That's just a different gospel. In fact, don't even call it a gospel. That's a different something else. You come up with your own term for it. And for Paul, salvation was found in Christ alone, full stop. But in terms of where you go from there, please hear me in this, and this is what we're going to be teasing out as we go through this series. In terms of where you go from there, it's not about what you do. It's not about what you don't do. It's then about living life in the Spirit. Something Paul is going to explain, and we will attempt to tease out in subsequent weeks. Okay, time has virtually gone. That is a seriously condensed version of what's going on here. But the big question is, how do we relate to this? I mean, I hope hope already you've been making some connection. But how do we make any connection between what's going on here in the first century context and where we find ourselves two millennia later? How do we go about this process of double listening? Well, let me put it like this. You see, as a Christian church, we must become what someone has described as systems analysts. I believe that's a challenge for this church. We've got to constantly examine what we believe and what we teach to ensure that we are not buying into some Jesus plus something else system. We've got to be aware of, we've got to root out anything that calls into question or discredits in any shape or form the adequacy of Christ or that relegates the Holy Spirit to a non-essential feature of Christian living. Paul was passionately committed to the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. He was passionately committed to the enabling, transforming work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. And you see, whenever we veer off that script, we're heading for a distorted, polluted, and ultimately pointless gospel that actually isn't the gospel at all. And so what are... And here's where I start to veer into difficult territory, maybe even unwise territory. But what are... Some of the Jesus plus things and thoughts and attitudes that can creep into our expression of faith. If this was like a seminar, I would love to open that up. And I'd love you to tell me what are some of the Jesus plus things that you have seen or heard or added to the Christian faith. See, it's highly unlikely that anyone's going to get up here and suggest circumcision. Or a radical change in our eating eating habits is the way forward. But there are times whenever we can imply that there are some additional extras to being a Christian. For example, it might be Jesus plus a particular brand or type of theology. I'm starting to go on thin ice here, okay? And you can lynch me afterwards if you want to. I was going to list some suggestions. But I'm not sure that would be helpful. Here's the point. Do you know there are those who in nailing their theological colours to the mast sometimes imply, do you know something? Actually, Jesus isn't enough. You've also got to embrace their particular theology. And you've got to embrace it on a whole host of secondary issues. 
And sometimes what happens is that Christian groups and Christian churches and Christian individuals are known more for their theological leanings than they are for their total trust and commitment to Jesus Christ. What are we known for? What are we identified as? Jesus people? Or Jesus plus a particular brand or type of theology people? For others, there's the danger of promoting a Jesus plus this experience. Again, I'm not going to go to specifics. And it's not that certain spiritual experiences are wrong or are unbiblical or haven't deeply impacted some people's faith. The danger comes whenever those experiences become the essence of a relationship with God. That unless this has happened to you or you have had this or you do this, then you're not quite there yet. Jesus plus a particular experience. Let me give you a more subtle Jesus plus mindset. And please hear me out on this one. There are times whenever we encourage certain practices. Biblical practices. But we do it in such a way as they come across as laws and regulations. You must read your Bible every day. You must go to church every week. You must pray before you leave the house every morning, etc., etc. And again, it's not that any of these are wrong. In fact, they are all very good disciplines. They are great holy habits. We as a church have done a whole series on them. The danger is whenever anyone starts to think or believe, do you know something? God doesn't love me or accept me because I haven't read the Bible this week. Or maybe worse still, that God really does love me because I have. Do you know, we are loved by God in Christ. We've been brought near to God in Christ. We've been forgiven by God in Christ. Bible reading does not make us relationally closer to God. However important the discipline of Bible reading is, that discipline doesn't make us acceptable to God. And whenever we think it or any discipline does, we compromise the work of Christ and we distort the power of the Spirit. And this Jesus plus issue and mentality is one that we constantly need to wrestle with. It's one we constantly as a church must address. And I hope we will do that with each other. I hope we will do that during this series in small groups. But here's the point. Anything, absolutely anything that supplements, augments, alters or changes the gospel is dangerous. And if you look at verse 8 and 9, and it's here I'm going to finish. And I'm sorry I've spoke for longer than usual. But if you look at verses 8 and 9, Paul doesn't mince his words regarding those who do distort the gospel. In fact, he invokes a curse on anyone, including himself, or even an angel from heaven, who preaches a twisted, misleading, modified gospel. It's that serious. You see, for Paul, there is only one gospel. It's a gospel of grace and peace that flow from God and Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us, to deliver us from this present evil age. And that is, and that always will be the ultimate breath of fresh air which provides true freedom. And you see this afternoon, can I encourage you to just go, breathe it in, and live.